Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast, of course, brought to you by our great friends at Alumni Hall. The weather is heating up, guys. I know you feel it just like I feel it. So make sure to stop in at Alumni Hall in store here in Athens inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center or online if you're not local to Athens. All good. They have a fantastic website with a great shopping experience at alumnihall.com and pick yourself up all the latest summer gear. I was down in Orlando slash Lake Nona for the NCAA tennis tournament this weekend and guys, it was freaking scorching hot. Well, at least when the tournament wasn't plagued by thunderstorms, but it was hot. It was very, very hot. But you know what, guys? As hot as it was, it was all good for me because I brought a couple different changes of clothes every single day, and it was Alumni Hall that outfitted me for each and every one of them. I just recently picked up a new Nike Golf Polo with the old school Bulldog with the flag hanging out of his mouth. I love that logo. You guys know I mean, I love those vintage logos. Anytime I see that, I'm a sucker for it. So I had to pick that up, and I rocked that on Friday. And not to brag, guys, not to brag, but I got more than a few compliments from the assorted Georgia fans in attendance there at the USTA National Facility in Lake Nona. And trust me, guys, it certainly wasn't because of my looks. It was solely because of the Alumni Hall Vintage Georgia Polo. So do yourself a favor, check out Alumni Hall, because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. But all right, guys, you know the drill. I am your host, Tyler. And between the annual scavenger hunt football recruiting weekend Football commitments, or at least a commitment, postseason baseball awards, Georgia softball winning its regional here in Athens, both tennis teams making deep runs into the NCAA tournament. It was a busy weekend, guys. It was a busy weekend in the world of Georgia athletics, and as is usually the case when that much is going on with our various programs, the questions came flooding in, and given the topical nature of those questions... I figured we needed to get to them today while they're still fresh, while they're still relevant, and while you still care about them. So that's what we're going to do today. We are going to dive right back into the listener mailbag. And let's go ahead, guys. Let's not waste any more time. Let's dive in here and uh, let's go with Nick's question first. And this is a good big picture question because it's one of those quintessential off-season topics to discuss on a podcast like this. So we'll dive into it here first off the top. So Nick, appreciate the question, Nick, asked, what is your stance on the Sanford Stadium isn't a top five SEC stadium debate that has been all over my timeline this weekend? And guys, I'm sure 
that a lot of you are like Nick. I mean, this was a conversation, especially Sunday, that was all over my timeline. I'm sure it was all over your timeline. No matter what I was doing scrolling through Twitter, I couldn't really escape. It kept popping up over and over again. And I usually don't comment on those kind of things. I've been trying to be a little bit more active on social media lately, guys. A lot of you have been asking me to do that and put some more content out there. So I've been trying. I've been trying my best. I don't know if, it, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been trying my best a little bit for you guys. But that's not typically something in the past that I've commented on because like, you can't win that battle. Like, I'll say what I'll say. I'll believe what I believe. But I'm not going to convince people from other fan bases or people of other opinions that I'm right. I'm just not going to. I'm just not going to be able to convince them. Like that's just how Twitter works. You can say whatever you want to say. You can scream as loud as you possibly can. You can be as right as you possibly can. But you're never really going to convince the other side. That's why Twitter drives me crazy sometimes. It's just like this this ma- mass of toxicity. But I guess as long as you know that going in and you kind of just don't take it too seriously, don't take yourself too seriously and have fun with it, it is it is what it is. It's whatever. But that's why I usually don't engage in those debates. And in the past, it's usually why I just don't engage that much in social media anyway because of that factor. And look, guys, in reality, the grand scheme of things, like someone, some random person's opinion on how loud Sanford Stadium is and what type of home field advantage it is or the lack of home field advantage there it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all, especially as we keep winning national championships. But at some point, when you keep seeing these narratives floated out there and they start to, to gain traction, at some point when they're just so absurdly misguided, they have to be addressed. They have to be addressed. So I did, I mean, in some small way, I was just one guy that I mean, no one really pays attention to, but you know, whatever. So I, I addressed it on social media last night. Some of you might have seen that, but I'll, I'll kind of share some of my thoughts here on the show as well. And I'll start with this. This is coming from someone who has not missed a Georgia game, home or away, in over a decade. Long time, guys. I've been going to games for a long, long time. I have been, in in that frame of time, I have been to every single SEC stadium, Sands, Texas A&M, and Florida, for obvious reasons. A&M, we have not played them in College Station since they joined the conference, which is still hard to believe. In Florida, you know, last time we played them in Gainesville, I was, what, 10 years old? And I wasn't traveling to Georgia road games because I was busy playing in the GFL every Saturday back in the day, if you know, you know. But I've been to a lot of games, guys, and that means I've been to a lot of stadiums, and even outside the SEC. I've been to Notre Dame. I've been to Clemson. I've been all over the place. Every game that we've played, I've been there, all right? So say I only say that to set up my credentials here. I, I think I'm pretty well qualified to respond to this particular question with a, with a high degree of credibility because not only have I been to essentially every single one of these stadiums, I've been to most of these stadiums multiple times, some of them five, six, seven, eight times. I've seen most of them at their best. I've seen most of them at their worst. I've seen a lot of different degrees of each of these stadiums. So yes, I do think I'm, I'm pretty well situated to respond to this question. And here's what I would say about this Sanford Stadium. What, what did Nick say? Sanford Stadium isn't a top five stadium debate. Here's what I would say. I am not going to sit here and try to sell you guys on the idea that Sanford Stadium is the loudest stadium in the country or even the SEC. I'm not going to sell you on that because it's not. I, I can say that objectively, guys. It is not the loudest stadium in the SEC, not the loudest stadium in the country that I have been to. Let's at first just be honest with ourselves with that reality. It's okay to admit that. That doesn't mean you lose your Georgia fan card. It doesn't mean you're any less of a fan. That's just reality. However, saying that, I would also strongly argue that right now, Sanford Stadium as currently constituted, is absolutely 
a top three stadium in the SEC in terms of home field advantage, in terms of volume level, intimidation factor. It absolutely a million percent is a top three stadium right now as things sit in the SEC. And I say as it's currently constituted for a reason, guys, that there's a very explicit reason why I'm I'm using that phrasing. Because here's the thing, as far as I'm concerned, the loudness and the intimidation factor, the home field advantage of a given stadium is not a static thing. It is not. It's a dynamic deal that fluctuates from game to game, from season to season, from, from decade to decade, even coach to coach, guys. And the reality is, there is no stadium out there. I don't care who it is. I don't even care if it's about Tiger Stadium. There's no stadium that is at its very best every single game. That, that, that doesn't happen for anybody, guys. I mean, I'll give you some examples. Like, uh, I put this out on social media last night as well. Like, Williams-Bryce in 2012 was one of the craziest environments that I had been in. Like, it was an insane environment. South Carolina was really good. They beat the holy hell out of us that year. That program has historically been a doormat. They're not usually very good. So they've been, they were starred for success. So when they had that success under Spurrier, and I think it, this crescendo was really like that night. Like that was like the high point for them. Like they were out, out of this world. That stadium was insane that night. But look at the other year that we played South Carolina and Williams Bryce. Like, like this year, for instance, like yeah, at the beginning of the game, like, you know, they, they do the sandstorm deal. Like they were hyped up for it. But like that stadium was dead. Like they knew what was going to happen. And, and like we saw very quickly what was happening to them. And guys, that entire stadium, like every South Carolina fan, like essentially all of them were cleared out by halftime. Like the student section was like before halftime, like they were done. So two years, two different years, two very, very different environments inside williams Bryce Stadium. Neyland Stadium, who a lot of people are, you know, after what happened last year with them beating Alabama, you know, all of a sudden, Neyland Stadium seen this like resurgence in in terms of like how people perceive it as one of the, the craziest, loudest, most insane stadiums in America. And it's like, okay, yeah, I guess Alabama, like that was the biggest game they'd had in, in a long, long time. The biggest one they'd had in 20 years. Yeah, like they were hyped up for that game. Top 10 matchup. They hadn't beaten Alabama in 15 years. They, they were starred for relevance. Just like South Carolina fans have been starred for relevance, you know, in 2012 when we were playing them. Yeah, that was a crazy environment. I wasn't there. You could, you could tell it on TV. It was, it was out of control. It was insane. And I've been to really loud, crazy environments in Neyland Stadium when Georgia's played there. 2021, you know, when we played there last, that was a, a loud environment. That was probably, the, not, not probably, it was the loudest I'd ever heard in Neyland Stadium. I was impressed. It was it was a really, really good college environment. But there's plenty of times, guys, I've been to Neyland Stadium. Because you know, Tennessee hasn't been good for the past 15 years. We know this, right? Like, that's very well established. Plenty of times I've been to that game and I'm like, like this is something that people talk about as being an intimidating environment. Like 2017, guys, like, yeah, when we shut them out, that place was a funeral home. I think Jordan-Hare, Auburn Stadium is another really good example. In I remember 2015, so it was Mark Rick's final year. Like At the time, I didn't know it was Mark Rick's final year. I was a, I love Mark Rick. I think he's a fantastic guy. I still firmly believe that. I didn't want anything bad to happen to him. Obviously, now like it, we made the right move. We get that. But I still love Coach Rick. And at the time, a guy was just like, I, I knew he was in trouble, and I didn't want him to get fired. I thought maybe if we won that game against Auburn on the road, that, that might save his job. And we won that game. And, uh, and it was a close game. It was a very poorly played game. Hey, some way, somehow we won that game. And I was like ecstatic because I thought that we had saved his job. Obviously, it didn't turn out that way because a couple weeks later against Tag. Oh, yeah, by the way, you're done. Um, but that stadium that day was, I mean, child's play. Like, that, the stadium was not intimidating at all. Like, nothing was going on. It was, it was dead. Absolutely dead. But then fast forward to the next time we played there, 2017, 
when we were number one in the country, that place was bonkers. It was out of control. Like, absolutely it was. I, I can readily admit that. But my point is that these things, the the loudness of a stadium, the home field advantage, the intimidation factor, these things fluctuate depending on a variety of factors over time. And you got to think about how excited is the fan base about the future of the program? How starved for success are they? Is their team contending that year? What time is the game? That matters, guys. Who is the opponent? Who are they playing? All of those things matter from a game-to-game, year-to-year, coach-to-coach basis. So with that in mind, I will absolutely admit, I'm man enough to admit this, Sanford Stadium at various points in our history, especially in the latter years of the Rick era, was not an intimidating environment. It was not one of the top three, top five SEC stadiums in terms of loudness and home field advantage and intimidation fact. Because the program, it kind of plateaued. Like, we were good. We'd been good for a while. We were always good. We were just never elite, right? Rarely, I should say rarely elite. Like, we were an elite team in 05, 2002, 2007. Like, there were some scattered years there where we were elite. And I would argue in most of those years, like, San Stadium was a different animal, which is kind of my point. 2005, I remember, like, Boise State 2005. I was at my sophomore year at Georgia. I remember that game, like it was opening game, Boise State. There's some Boise was kind of rolling. They were this new kid on the block, and like they were they were the big, you know, sweetheart of America, this G5 team. Well, G5 wasn't a thing, but this like mid-major team that that was really starting to make some noise. And I remember the offseason build up to that game. Was there were there were a few pundits out there during the offseason, you know, when it's just talking season and you have time to just like spout off at the mouth, who were suggesting, oh, Boise State might give George some trouble. You know, there's no David Green, there's no David Pollock. Like, we don't know what DJ Shockley's going to be as, as the starter. Like, maybe Jarrett Zabransky, I think was his name, the quarterback there, can go in there and then they, and the Broncos can upset Georgia. And so when that game came out, it was the first game of the season, which is always a good environment, especially when you have a, a respectable opponent. But you, you think about, the buildup to that game and how some people were like saying, hey, they might give Georgia some trouble. You know, is Georgia going to be able to continue what they built after Pollock and, and Green are gone, after all those guys are gone? That environment was insane, especially when we opened the game with a couple interceptions. Like, we just jumped out from the get-go. Like, that was a crazy, crazy environment. Most most 2005 was like that. 2007, guys, the Auburn blackout in 2007 was one of the craziest team environments I've ever, ever been a part of. Like, when we came out there in the red jerseys, for warm-ups, and we, there's all this build-up. The whole stadium's in black, and we see the guys come out there because you know, you're a student, you got to be out there like two hours before the game to get your spot, right? And I would save a bunch of spots for friends and whatnot. And um, I was like, oh my God, what, when they come out, like, what are they going to be wearing? They're going to be wearing black? And they're wearing red. It's kind of a letdown. It's like, okay, whatever. You go back in the locker room, and then boom, what hits? Back in black. Team comes running out in black. Guys, I at that moment, I don't know if I've ever been in a stadium and had a, a, and experienced a louder moment than that right there. I guess maybe the the Keeley Ringo pick six in Indianapolis. Like, yeah, that was louder. But I was just like, I was just so caught up in the moment that I wasn't really paying attention to the noise around me. I was just like, and and I was just inconsolable. So those seasons where we were good, like Sanford Stadium was a was a really good environment. Like 2013, I think we were a national championship contender in 2013. Obviously, before we had that just crazy spate of injuries that running back Aaron Murray goes down against Kentucky with the ACL tear like if we were fully healthy that season for the entire season we were 100% national title contender we might have I don't know if we would have won it but we were certainly in the conversation remember early in that season guys South Carolina at home LSU at home two insane environments at home and those were day games those weren't night games either one of those games were night games if I remember correctly I think they were both 330 games and the stadium was, was bananas for both of those games. Why? Because we were good and because we thought we had a chance to actually be better than what we had been. And that was coming off the 2012 season where we felt like y- inches, yards short, I guess, of 
uh, of a national championship because we would have beaten Alabama in the SEC title game, gone on to beat Notre Dame in the BCS national title game, and that would have been incredible. Obviously, it didn't transpire like that, but the fact that we came as close as we did once people got over the, the disappointment of how it ended like that in the SEC title game, Going to 2013, like we're okay, we got a lot coming back. We got Gurley coming back, we got Aaron Murray coming back, like we got some dudes coming back. Like this this could be the year we make that run. And early in the season, we take down South Carolina, who had just beaten us the year before in 2012, right? The, the game I talked about earlier, and they just beat the hell out of us. Well, that was a big game for us. We we it was a close game, hard fall game, high scoring game. We came back and won that game. LSU was a highly rated team. That was the Murray Mettenberger showdown. And that was a crazy environment. Those buildups were huge. And Samer Stadium was I, I would argue in, in those games right there would rival any environment in the SEC. But I can also admit there are plenty of other instances, other games where it wasn't that case. And I, I can also say like that has been a source of frustration for me because I'm the guy that's going crazy, losing my voice. You guys have heard me coming on here after games sometimes where I can barely talk and I'm like, I'm doing like the honey water treatment, trying to like get my voice back so I can get on here and do a podcast, not like make you guys cringe listening to my voice. It's always been something that's frustrated me like in the past, but I can I can say with complete confidence that in the current context of college football and where our program is under Kirby Smart, I would say in the Kirby Smart era, especially after 2016, once we started to hit our, our stride in 2017, Sanford Stadium is unquestionably a top three stadium in terms of loudness, home field advantage in the SEC. No questions asked. And I know that's a very subjective thing, guys. I mean, it is. I Look, all this is subjective in nature. It's largely dependent on the context of the game that whoever's opinion we're talking about, the context of the game that they took in in whatever stadium, like what time was that game played? Who were they playing? Uh, what was what, what was the, the status of the team at the time? Were they a, a contender for a title? Like whatever the, the context was of that game that a person took in, that certainly colors and influences how they perceive a stadium. So clearly it's it's very, very subjective. But the one thing you, I guess you could look at and, and try to get subject, subjectivity out of it is what is the team's record at home? It's like, that's, one, that's, not the, that's not the be all end all. But if you're looking at, okay, what type of home field advantage does this team have inside this stadium? Doesn't your win-loss record have something to do with that? Like, shouldn't that be some sort of indication of how intimidating your environment is inside the stadium, how loud it is, and how much of a home field advantage the crowd creates? I think it has to be certainly part of the conversation. How could it not be? And if you look at Georgia's record under Kirby Smart at home inside Sanford Stadium between the hedges since 2017, we're going to throw out 2016. It was first year. We weren't great that year, but we obviously made the run to the national championship game in 2017, won the SEC title that year. So what, 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. So we're talking a six-year span here, guys. It's not a small sample size. In a six-year span, the last six years, we are 34-1 and one at home. Now, I know what a rival fan would say. They would say, oh, that's just, that's just because you're good. It's not because you're stadium. Like, it doesn't matter what stadium you played in, you would have won those games. Okay, cool. So if, if you're going to go that route, what you're admitting is that you just suck and we're just that much better than you. Like we play in this terrible stadium that's that has no home for advantage and we still beat the hell out of everybody at home. Like get out of here with that. You're like you're, you're riding on yourself. You're just admitting that your program sucks and that you are 100% beneath us, which is what you spent the entire offseason trying to argue against, that you're not. Trying every which way to do the mental gymnastics to try to situate yourself above the two-time defending national champion. And the clip that that started this whole debate, I think it was a clip from one of the um, Barstool podcasts. I think it was Unnecessary Roughness. And, uh, you know, watching the clip there, I think there were there. So one, I think it was Brandon Walker said that Georgia is like Sanford Stadium is not even a top five stadium in the SEC, which that's that's crazy. Uh, maybe he went to a game 
back in like, I don't know, 2011 or something when Mississippi State was in Athens. I don't remember what year that was, whatever year they were in Athens. And he saw that game. He's like, oh, well, you know, this is not that love environment. Well, number one, Brandon, sorry, Mississippi State um, is not good. Um, It's hard for a team to get up to really get up to play Mississippi State. Because for those of you who don't know, he is a Mississippi State guy, so that probably had something to do with it. And also, you know, you know, there were, as I admitted, like there were times where years where we weren't that good, and Sanford Stadium wasn't a great environment. But that is simply not the case now. Again, these things change. But the five teams he rattled off, like five teams he rattled off that were clearly better than Georgia in his opinion, were LSU, A and M, Tennessee, Auburn, and the Swamp, which I think is insane. The Swamp. Let's start with the Swamp. The Swamp guys before this season. From 2018 all the way up to 2022, Florida sold out four games. They had four home sellouts, one per year. So please kindly get the hell out of here with this swamp is a more intimidating home field advantage than Sanford Stadium. That's crazy. Now, maybe once upon a time when they were rolling with Urban Meyer and winning national titles with Steve Spurrier, yeah, maybe that was true. I can't really say one way or the other based off of experiences. I have, again, have not been to, to, to Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, the swamp. That's one of the two SEC stadiums that I have not been to for obvious reasons. But I watch games and I look up there and I say, oh, wow, this stadium is not even like remotely full. And you see numbers like like that, like, oh, they've only sold out four games in four years. Again, these things change. Right now, there is no way on earth that the Swamp is a better, louder, more intimidating environment than Sanford Stadium. That's, it's just not. It's just simply not. Tiger Stadium, LSU, absolutely, I'll give them that. That I, I've only been there a couple times. I've been there a ton because we don't play them a ton. But yeah, that, that place is, I mean, that it's crazy. Although I will say, like, there are games where LSU, like, when they're playing, like, McNeese State, like, it's not a crazy environment because nowhere is crazy when you're playing teams like that. That's just how things are. But for a big game, like, when all these teams are at their best, LSU, like, it's, dude, it's up there. It's got to be number one in the SEC. Um, A&M, I don't know, like, it's huge, right? So, like, just based on sheer numbers, it gets loud for big games. Again, haven't been there, but, you know, you look at their record, like, they haven't really had that great of a home record. Now, maybe that's because they haven't been all that good. Sure, that certainly plays a role in it, but, I mean, I, I would I would assume it's a loud stadium. It seems that way to a degree um, on on TV, but, again, that's one thing I haven't been to, so I can't speak with that much authority on A&M, so I'll grant you A&M, because since I haven't been there. Um, Tennessee, no. Okay, I, I know Tennessee is bigger, okay, but Tennessee, guys, it is very, very, very hit or miss, even more so than Georgia. I would argue, like when we had been at our peak, like 2007 Auburn blackout game, uh, 2019 Notre Dame, Tennessee at home last year. I mean, hell, go back to 2021 with Kentucky and Arkansas, both home, both noon games, by the way. No stadium is loud at noon. Ours was rocking both those games with game day in town. Um, I would argue at our best, we are absolutely the equal of, of Neyland Stadium. Like if Neyland's at its best, we're at our best. I mean, I guess maybe by sheer volume, like number wise, like maybe it's slightly louder because there's just more people, I guess. But like when it comes to this in-state environment, when we are at our best, we are absolutely top three in the country. And in the state, like, I have respect for it. it. It is a tough place, like when they're good and when the fans are actually like into it. But over the past 15 years, those games have been very few and far between, guys. I've been to far more games in Tennessee where I walk out there saying, like, this stadium is not that crazy at all. Then I have walked out there saying, oh my God, like, that was an insane environment. Auburn, much the same thing. Like, I think Auburn, I have respect for Auburn. Like it, like in 2017, it was crazy loud. 2019 was crazy loud. 2021, mm, nah, not so much. They kind of knew what was happening. Like They knew what was going to happen. They were going to beat us. 
there were isolated moments, but like it, it, for the whole game, no, it, it was not a crazy, crazy environment. Again, I've been in there plenty of times where it was just kind of like, hmm, ho-hum, okay, whatever. I would say, you know, I, I would put Jordan Hare on, on about even par with Sanford Stadium. Like, I think it's, to me, it's it's very similar. When both teams are at their best, I would say it's, it's kind of a draw. But here's why I say that Sanford Stadium is a top three stadium right now as it's currently constituted because we are at our best. Sanford Stadium is at its best, at its loudest, far on a far more regular basis right now than these other stadiums are because of the excitement level that Kirby Smart has generated within our program, the excitement level that back-to-back national championships have generated within our program when we had gone 41 long, impossible years without winning a national title. And maybe that will change one day. I don't want to think about the possibilities down the road of when we are not competing for national titles. That just seems so far away right now. Knock on wood with Kirby Smart here. But I mean, there will be a day probably, you know, when we're, when uh, you know Kirby Smart leaves. I don't want to think about that, but it'll probably, it will happen at some point. And maybe um, the environment at Samford Stadium changes and, it, go, and it, it becomes an environment where it's not as loud. It's more wine and cheese. Because we have been in those stages before. Maybe that will happen at some point down the road. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. And certainly right now, there are not five stadiums in the SEC that are better home field advantages and home field environments than Sanford Stadium. Get out of here with that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, guys. So I think I went long enough on that one. Yeah, I think so. So let's go ahead and let's move on here, guys. Let's talk about the recruiting weekend that was in the Classic City. Zach, I have a couple questions on the scavenger hunt weekend. So let's go with Zach's question first. I think because this is the kind of an essential question when talking about the scavenger hunt. And I think sometimes we make this mistake. I'll include myself in this. Like people just assume you like you should assume people always know what these things mean. And so Zach brings up a very fair point. He asks, can you explain to me what exactly the scavenger hunt thing is? I kept hearing about it all week without anyone ever actually explaining what exactly it was. I know it has something to do with recruiting and getting a bunch of big time recruits on campus, but is it really just kind of like a scavenger hunt? If so, I have to admit that sounds pretty lame. Thank you for the question, Zach. I think it's a great question. And I, I get where you're coming from. You're like on the surface, you hear scavenger hunt, like you're bringing high school kids into into your city, onto your campus to 
do a scavenger hunt and that's how you're going to convince them to commit to your program like that's how you're going to be like keep up to date with with what's cool with the kids and that's how you're going to stay hip and all that kind of thing like that's that's your plan okay i don't know about that and i get that but I, I'm here to tell you guys, like it is very, very effective. I, I've been around campus a couple times when I when they've been on these scavenger hunts during these weekends the past couple of years, and dude, I'm I'm telling you, like the kids are into it. I mean, it was a couple of years ago I was running through campus, and I came across. A, I mean, you know, I follow recruiting very closely. I see these guys. I'm like, wait, is that so and so? And I look, I'm like, oh yeah, it is. And I think this might be the first year they did it. And I was like, what is going on? And then you read more about it. And you're like, oh, it's. And I asked some people out of, oh, it's a scavenger. And you kind of see what's what they were doing. Like, There's a coach. Here's what. Here's how it's set up, guys. Let's start here. They're put into teams. These recruits are put into teams, and it's usually based on like the position you play, and they're paired up with coaches. Usually, the position coach that you would ultimately play for if you decide to commit to Georgia. And they go all throughout campus, like literally all throughout campus. They go to the arches, they go to the bookstore, they go to different points downtown, and they usually all end up in the stadium. And what they're trying to do, they're, they're it's, it is a scavenger. They're finding clues, trying to go, try to find the next clue, figure it out, decipher it. Where do we go next? And the ultimate goal is to find Kirby Smart. That's the ultimate goal. And it all usually ends up inside the stadium because like that's that's the crown jewel, right? But it's a really cool way to do a couple of different things. Number one, it's a really cool way to get them used to the campus. It's like what do people traditionally do to kind of show a, a, a prospective recruit their campus? Well, they would send them on these absurdly boring campus tours, right? Like you have a tour guy with a monotone. Oh, here is the law school. Here is the business school. Over there's the library. Meanwhile, all these like 17, 16, 17, 18 year old high school recruits, they're more far more concerned about all the hot girls walking by them, and they're not paying a lick of attention to anything that they're hearing. So it, it's not really effective. It's boring. It might even turn some players off. So you still want to show them what you have to offer, right? You want to show them your campuses. Why would you not? It's a gorgeous campus. You want to show them downtown. It's the best college town in America. You want to show them all these things. Show them what you have to offer, but you don't want to make it boring. You want to make it fun, cool, interesting. And this is a way to do that. So that's one of the big reasons behind it. Then also another reason behind it is it's a way for these recruits to get to know their position coaches on, on a deeper level and, and like in a fun way, right? Like not just sitting there like watching film. Like, no, they're you're just having fun. You kind of see them more as a person. You kind of peel back the layers of the tough, gruff, old football coach. And it also has the added benefit of kind of building a sense of camaraderie in all of these different recruits that you are trying to get to come to your school. And that's not necessarily the be all end all. Like I think a lot of times too much hype is put into like, oh, this 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 group of players are package deals. This guy, this guy, they're going to go to school together. Whatever school they're going to go to, the same school. And sometimes that happens more often than not. It does end up happening. But building that sense of camaraderie and building those relationships between those recruits, it it does matter. Like it it will certainly lead to players giving you more of a look and more consideration than they otherwise would. They didn't get along with the players, right? They didn't have those relationships with those guys. So there's a lot of things that it does in a lot of ways that it helps our recruiting process and our recruiting efforts. So yeah, I, I totally get it, Zach. I get where you're coming from. I get like on the service scavenger hunt, like what? Like, yeah, kind of sounds somewhat lame, right? But the way that our coaches structure it, I'm just telling you, the times that I've seen these kids on campus during during the scavenger hunt, they have been having an absolute blast. I mean, smiles over their faces. They're they're into it. They're running around. They're going as fast as they can. They want to win. Like these kids are having a great time, and it seems, as far as I can tell, to be very very effective. Okay, next question here. One more question about the scavenger hunt. Now, this is something that you guys might be a little bit more interested in because this is referring to okay. 
did the scavenger hunt actually yield anything positive for us this year? So Bryson asked, will we get any commitments coming out of the scavenger hunt weekend? Because that is like, after all, what we're trying to do, right? And who do you think is the next player to join the 2024 class? So uh, in the interest of a full disclosure here, guys, when Bryson sent this question, he sent this question in last night. So I'm recording this Monday evening, and this was sent in Sunday night. And I uh, I was ready to say a player um, when I got on here to record today. And I didn't know that he would pop today, but he did. And that is tied in Colton Heinrich from Cardinal Gibbons down in Fort Lauderdale. He was the guy that I, I heard coming out of, of, of the scavenger hunt weekend that was most likely to commit first. I just didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. I was told sooner rather than later. I just didn't know it was going to be like, um, like the next day at least when he went public. Apparently, he did commit um, over the weekend. He was one of the silent commitments over the weekend, but he went public uh, quicker than I thought he would. So it was today, and that was the name I was going to go with, but I can't go with that now because like he's already public. But let's talk about Colton Heinrich here real quick for a couple minutes, guys. So I know when you look at his numbers here, like you look at his ratings, you're like, what's happening? Like We're Georgia. Don't we recruit the best Titans in the country? And you look at his ranking in the 247 composite, he's ranked number 633 nationally. And when you just look at those numbers, you're like, um, okay, what am I missing here? Like Again, we're Georgia, Brock Bowers, Oscar Delp, Darnell Washington, Lawson Lucky. Um, why are we taking a tight end ranked in the 600s? Can we not get anybody better? But as I tell you, all the time, guys, when we're talking about recruiting rankings. I'm not going to sit here and tell you recruiting rankings don't matter because more often than not, that they do. They're, generally speaking, pretty accurate. But there are plenty of cases like Colton Heinrich here, like Nitro Tuggle, you know, the receiver we got a couple months ago. I told you guys, like I was insanely high on. He was a, like a three-star. Nobody was talking about this guy. And lo and behold, what is he now? Oh, yeah, like he's he's top he's top 100 nationally right now in, the, in these composite rankings. Because I told you guys, once he committed to Georgia, that means a lot more of these recruiting writers and people who were responsible for rankings on these recruiting services, they're going to pay attention to this guy, which they otherwise hadn't really paid attention to him. And they're going to say, oh, wait, Georgia is taking his commitment? Like, let's take a closer look at him. And he starts to go to some of these camps going into his senior year. People see him. They put more eyes on him and they see what we see. Oh yeah, like we we missed on this guy. This guy is, he's legit. And now he's moved significantly up in the rings. I think something similar is going to happen with Colton Heinrich. Because when you watch his tape, when you see him on film, you're like, what, what, where's the disconnect here? Like there's no way this guy is only the, the 31st best tight in the country. He's only in the 600s national. There's no way because He's far better than that guy. Six three and a half, two hundred thirty plus pounds. He's going to move in the rankings. I mean, at this point, I just trust our coaches and their evaluations. The rankings. I'm not gonna say rankings don't matter because it does help build perception of a program and help build momentum. But this guy is going to move up. If you watch his tape, he's not. I would not say that he is. He doesn't have quite the top end speed of a guy like Brock Bowers or even Oscar Double. He doesn't have that kind of athleticism in terms of like straight line speed, but he moves very, very well for, for a tight end. And he has exceptional receiving skills. Like he's one of these guys, you he plays out in the slot. He plays out outside quite a bit for his high school teams. Colonel Gibbons was actually a really good high school program. And he showcases a lot of high-level receiving skills. I mean, he basically operates out there in terms of his skill set as a receiver. I mean, he's got a big frame. He can do some of the things that we want our tight ends to do. Big, strong guy as well, but got fantastic body control. He runs really good routes for a guy at this stage, at that size, has really strong hands, understands how to use his body and how to use his size to his advantages. And a lot of guys, that's important, guys. A lot of guys who have that kind of size, they're big, but they don't know how to use their size to their advantage. Like It's kind of just waste on them. He's not one of those guys. He understands how to use it. 
Now, saying all that, I'm not trying to tell you he's like a, a five-star recruit. I'm not going to tell you that. He's not Brock Bowers. He's not Darnell Washington. He's not even really Oscar Delp in terms of athleticism, but he's a really good player. I think he's he's absolutely a four-star guy. He's absolutely, I, w- I would say, a, a top 250 guy nationally for sure. I would even say, I, I think he's probably a top, borderline top 100, top 150 guy is where I would put Colton Heinrich right now based off what I have seen. The only thing that keeps me back from saying he's like a, a a guy that should be inside the top 100 is that's just the top line speed, which for a tight end, that's not necessarily as critical as some other positions. But everything else outside of top line speed, this guy does it very, very well. I'm very excited about his commitment. You guys, I think, you know, I don't want to tell you what to think. You guys think what you want. I would just say, watch the tape. Watch the tape. Make up your own mind. Make up those decisions for yourselves. Don't let just some random ranking from some recruiting writer who didn't really bother to watch the guy before he committed to Georgia color and influence how you view him as a prospect. I think he's far better than that. I'll let you guys watch the tape, make up your own minds. But me personally, I think he's a much better player than that. And again, our valuation is just, it's top notch in the country, guys. And the reality is, I think right now what you're seeing is that our coaching staff and their evaluations are just vastly ahead of the market right now. And that's ahead of other programs. That's ahead of these recruiting services and all these guys who are responsible for doing the rankings. We are just significantly out ahead of the market right now. And uh, that is one of the reasons why we've had so much success. Not the only reason, like we still, we're Georgia. We were going to recruit top players anyway, but when we can like supplement the top players with all these diamonds in the rough that we've gotten over the years, be it Jordan Davis, be it Lab McConkey, be it Javon Buller, be it Stetson Bennett, these, all these different names, like Eric Stokes, right? All these guys that no one else in the SEC was even sniffing. And we not only find them, we recruit them, we bring them in, we develop them, and now they're big-time contributors for us. We are just ahead of the market. It's that simple. But anyway, kind of got off on a tangent there. Back to the original question. Yes, we are going to get some commitments out of the scavenger hunt weekend. We've already gotten one of them. Now, I will say, like, I, I don't know if there's any more that are going to be like imminent within the next couple of days, next week or two, but we laid the groundwork for several big-time players moving forward in the future. Some guys that are going to take their official visits, they're not ready to commit right now, but we certainly either made a move with some of these guys and better positioned ourselves to get their commitment down the road or just further moved out ahead of other programs that were recruiting a lot of these big time guys. So it will pay dividends. It's just for a lot of these guys to be more down the road than like in the immediate future. The one guy outside of Heinrich that I would say watch out for. So if the question is who's going to be the next guy to commit, I was going to say Heinrich. He's already popped. So let's go with somebody else. The next guy I would say to watch is KJ Bolden. So he is the the receiver DB from Buford High School. Uh, I watched this guy what, two years ago, and that was when Isaiah Bond was at Buford. So Buford used to be in Clark Central's region, believe it or not. Crazy. I know. They're not anymore. Um, so Clark Central, just a mile or so from where I live, went up there, watched Buford play the Glads, and... Um, that, again, Isaiah Bond was a senior on that team. He was going to Alabama, highly, re- highly, highly re- recruited guy, very highly rated dude. And I watched that game, and I came away saying, like, dude, like, a Bond's great. He's really good, but I think this sophomore, this K.J. Bowen guy might actually be better, and especially in the long run, considering he's only a sophomore right now. And I still kind of think that might end up being the case. Like, I mean, Isaiah Bond's a really good athlete. We'll see. Like, He might be a guy that breaks off for Alabama this year. We'll see. He hasn't done it yet. We'll see what happens. But I think K.J. Bolden is a fantastic athlete. He has the ability to play on the offensive side of the ball or the defensive side of the ball. And we're going to let him pick. Like, we've told him basically, hey, you can play whatever side of the ball you want to. I think he sees himself long-term. I think he sees his future more as a DB. And I think I think that might be might be true, too. Um, I would love to have him on the offensive side of the ball, but we're recruiting really well at the receiver position right now, especially if we land some of the guys. I think we might ultimately end up landing 
So I think he's going to be a defensive guy, but he's a five-star prospect, super highly recruited dude. And I think, again, I'm not saying that he is going to commit like tomorrow or next week or anything like that, but like I don't know if there's anyone that's going to be, like at least right now coming out of Scavenger Hunt weekend, that's going to be a guy that's going to pop in the next week or so. But I think Bolden, you know, he's closer than most of these guys, and he's he's a big-time recruit guy. I mean, he's number eight Nash in the 247 composite. 6'185 pounds, fantastic, dynamic athlete with the ball in his hands, playing defense, whatever. The guy's just a football player. I know he's making his first official visit to Clemson, I think the week of, not this weekend, but next weekend. And then I think he's coming to Athens back for his, for his official visit to Georgia the following weekend. So I think after his official visit, certainly before the summer's up, this guy will commit. And uh, right now, based on where we stand, things can change when they go on these official visits. But right now, where we stand coming out of Scavenger on weekend, I think we are positioned very, very well from what I understand. When it comes to KJ Bolton. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. All right, guys, we've got one more football question day, then we're going to move on to some of the other sports. We have some other big developments going on this weekend in the world of Georgia sports outside of football. But one more football question for you guys. Hank asks, I keep hearing how Dylan Riola's commitment instantly makes us the leader for a bunch of other five-star guys. I know Riola is a superstar recruit, but does one guy really carry that much weight with other recruits? Fantastic question, Hank. And I did kind of allude to a little bit earlier. I think for the most part, I'm with you on this. I think there's far too much made of the idea of like package deals, like, oh, this guy commits. That means like this guy's a done deal. He's coming to Georgia. They're tight. They're in a text chain. Like that means they're all coming. We're getting everybody. And it doesn't usually end up working out that way. Now, here's what I will say quarterbacks usually are the centerpiece of a recruiting class. And when you talk about a high level quarterback recruit, a five star guy, a number one overall recruit, absolutely. That that does matter. I'm not gonna sit here and say it does not matter. It carries weight. It really does. But it doesn't necessarily mean that like Jeremiah Smith, you know, number one wide receiver, and Ryan Wingo, and all these different guys are gonna now just completely drop every other school that's recruiting them and say like I'm done. I'm going to Georgia now. Like that. This just not, doesn't happen that way. But it does. Here's what it does do. It opens their eyes and opens the door more for us to to make our pitch to them. It opens them more to what we have to offer. 
And there might be a one guy here or there that does make his commitment based off of like Dylan Ryola or another commit. Like maybe a wide receiver says, look, dude, I want to go to the NFL. And I think my best chance in the NFL is to play with the top quarterback in the country. And I like this dude. So like, yeah, like let's join forces. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit to Georgia. I'm not going to say that's impossible. I mean, that, that certainly has happened in the history of recruiting. It just doesn't happen that way every single time. It's not like Dylan Ryola commits. Like now we're getting every single player that we want on our board just because of him. It certainly helps. It enhances our chances, but it alone is not enough to seal the deal with those guys, especially now with NIL being the factor that it has become. But Ryola is absolutely making an impact in, in recruiting for us guys. He is out recruiting his butt off. The reason that he committed when he did coming into scavenger hunt weekend is he wanted to build momentum coming this weekend with all these big time guys coming into Athens and so it could build excitement, momentum, all those things. So it was very strategic that he committed when he committed. It certainly wasn't one of those deals. We just woke up one day and was like, Hey guys, like I think I want to go to Georgia now. Like, no, that's not how that word. He's known he's wanted to go to Georgia for a long time. I told you guys about a month or so ago that he was going to commit to Georgia. I had a piece ready already written for it. And he just kind of backed off and was waiting, I guess for this time, which makes sense strategically to do it now. Um, but he's definitely helping. Um, he's recruiting hard for us, guys, and I do think it will have an impact. I just, uh, you just don't know. Every recruit's different. Every recruit's different. You just don't know who is going to impact and how much it will impact them. But it, it certainly does not hurt. All right, guys. I've got a baseball question here. This is from Peyton. Peyton asks, Charlie Condon just won the SEC Freshman of the Year. So finish the sentence. Charlie Condon is the best Georgia player since... Well, I think the first thing to come to mind to play the game here, Peyton, it's fun. It's a fun game here. The first player that comes to mind is Gordon Beckham, right? Because Charlie Condon set an SEC freshman record with 25 home runs, breaking the previous record of 22. And uh, was only is second in Georgia program history with 25 home runs, only three behind Gordon Beckham's 28. I think it was that 2008 we made that run to the finals of the College World Series before losing to Fresno State, won the first game, and then lost the last two. Yep, still remember that one. That one sucked. Um, so I think the obvious answer would be Gordon Beckham, but I, we've also had some really good pitchers. I think he's certainly the best position player, at least in terms of, like, he's the best hitter that we've had since Gordon Beckham. Like, hands down, no questions. He's the best hitter that we've had in 15 years. Like, zero questions asked about that. And he did, oh, by the way, guys, uh, as Peyton said, just win the SEC Freshman of the Year Award. Um, he's he's freaking crazy. He's awesome. He's he's insane. But we had some really good pitchers. Like, Emerson Hancock? Like, I know he wasn't a position player, but Emerson Hancock, is gonna. Like, he was a freaking stud for us as a pitcher. So I don't know, like, was he as good as Emerson was? Was he as impactful for us? I mean, honestly, position players, I'm like, yeah, they probably are more impactful because they play every day, right? Pitchers only pitch once a week. So maybe it is. Maybe he is the best player that we've had since Gordon Beckham. And we've had some good players. I mean, the Tate brothers were good. Being, we still got Connor Tate right now. He's having a fantastic year. He just, all he does is hit. Um, Aaron Schunk back in the day. Um, we've had some good players, man. We've had some really good players. But I like you're talking second second highest home run total in the history of the Georgia program as a freshman. So I think it's fair to say maybe the best player that we've had. It's certainly the best season that we've had since Gordon Beckham's 28, 20, 2008 season. Like that, that's certainly clear to me. But Condon's fantastic, guys. I just really hope that we can keep him. Um, I don't know what's gonna take place with our program. I I, well, I, I do have. An inkling. Um, there's, I've gotten some word that Scott Strickland's certainly in trouble. His future's in doubt right now. I haven't heard for sure he's gone, but those those wheels are certainly seem to be turning right now. Um, I don't know. Um, we're gonna have to pony up probably with NIL to keep him, and I don't know if we're that if we have the boosters that are invested enough to do that. I hope he stays, man. I really, really do. Um, I'll say this about Condon too, man. I don't know if I've said this before. It's it is an absolute shame that we have a guy the caliber of Charlie Condon in the middle of our lineup along 
with with Connor Tate. It's not just Connor. I mean, he's the best, but Tate is awesome too. And we have some good some good hitters in that lineup. But it's it is a shame that we are not going to be the NCAA tournament with two dudes like that in your lineup. Like all these years, we we had like anemic offenses. We had great pitching. It's like obviously the inverse now. But just to think, have a guy like Charlie Condon and you can't make the freaking tournament. I mean, Gordon Beckham, now there are other players besides Gordon Beckham, but with him having that year in 2008, we made it all the way to the finals of the College World Series. We're not going to make the tournament this year. Like, I hate, I usually hate to call for guys' jobs, but at this point, guys, like, we have to think about what's in the best interest of of the Georgia program. I think what you have to ask yourself is this. I think, maybe I mentioned this last week. Is Scott Stricken the best the University of Georgia can do with his baseball program? I think the answer is clearly no. And I think I personally think it's time to move on. Again, like, it's... Like, it's just the height of absurdity if we keep this guy after missing the tournament this year and never making out of a regional in in his career here. Jordan, making one regional his entire career as, as a head baseball coach at the college level. Just, uh, yeah, I think it's time. But uh, we'll, we'll wait to see what happens there. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that when, uh, when the time comes, if it comes. All right, last question here today. Got a question from Brinley. I don't think we've had a question from Brinley before, so welcome. Appreciate it. And I actually don't know if we've ever had a Georgia softball question. I don't know that we have. I really don't. Um, But we've got one today. And Brinley asks, how much of a chance do you give the softball team of upsetting Florida State in the Super Regional and making it to the College World Series? Thank you for the question, Brinley. It's nice to have something a little different to talk about here on the show. I am not going to sit here and try to act like I am some sort of Georgia softball expert. I'm not. Um, I do. I do pay attention. I watch. I follow box scores. I watch. I watch a couple games. I probably watched. Um, I don't know seven or eight games this year. I really had fun watching the regional from Orlando this weekend. I wish I was in Athens so I could have taken in the game at the Jack Turner uh, Complex down there. But I was at the NCAA tournament in Orlando slash Lake Nona and uh, couldn't do that. But I was able to watch it and I had a blast watching. This is a really fun team, guys, and they can absolutely hit the cover off the baseball. Jada Kearney and look at. I'm not like a big NCAA softball guy, but like. But if you just pull up the numbers for all these teams in the country, she's right there at the top when it comes to hitting. She's got 19 home runs on the year right now. And I can't speak for every softball team out there and every big hitter across the country. But what I can say is she knocks the cover off the ball. She's like destroyed one in uh, in the first matchup against Virginia Tech. Off their pitcher, was, who was doing a good job. She was keeping us relatively in check. And she just smacked the ball dead center, destroyed it. I, I thought like... I honestly thought the pitcher was like having a seizure. Like when, when she like released the ball and Kearney made contact, you see her body just kind of like tremble. It's like, and she like fell to her knees and I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. Cause she absolutely murdered the, the softball. But uh, I mean, Hey, look, I, I think they got a shot. Now Florida state, I actually watched not the entire Florida state South Carolina game. So Florida state was hosted. They're the, they're the three seed. We're the 14 seed. And I didn't get a chance to take in the first matchup between South Carolina and, and Florida State, but the Cox beat them. And so it was, it was a winner-take-all game for the regional, their, their second game there. I guess it's actually their third game against South Carolina. And it was close, man. It was a one nothing game, and Florida State's pitcher pitched a complete game, shutout, perfect game, a perfect game. Now that's not as that's not as uncommon in softball as it is in baseball. It, it's still uncommon, but it, it happens a little bit more than what you would see in baseball. But in that moment, like when you had to have it, fantastic performance. Their name is, is Sandercock, I want to say is her last name, and she was fantastic, guys. So and it's just like baseball, like softball, especially softball, even more so. Again, my limited knowledge of softball. If you have a pitcher like that, you are tough to beat, especially in a three game series. So with the super regional, it's best of three. And with softball, it's like a like a pitcher, a baseball pitcher. If you throw, 
you know, one game that weekend, if you start one game, you go six, seven innings, you can't pitch again. Like you're done for the weekend, right? Not necessarily the case when it comes to softball because the way of the, the, with the arm motion, it doesn't put as much stress on their shoulder and they can actually throw a lot more pitches and they can bounce back faster. So she'll probably pitch at least two games if, if it goes to three games. Uh, heck, even if it's only two games, she might pitch two games. So that makes it tough. But like, we've got some really good pitchers of our own. Madison Kerpix is back. She was our she was our best pitcher last year, but it's really just her. Um, but right now, she's not really even our best pitcher. We've got this girl named Shelby Walters from Duke, and she's got a one three seventy ERA. Kerpix got two four zero ERA, so she's great. We have a really nice one two punch. And guys, if you have that in softball, like these softball teams, you know, if you have like two really good starters, like you were in really good shape. A lot of teams only have like one really good starter. We've got two of them. So I don't I'm not saying either one of them are as good as Sandercock, like statistically they are not but with our lineup when, you, when you're talking about jada kearney sarah mosley's got 17 homers sydney kuma's got what 11 homers i think like we've got some girls that can absolutely rake i mean in our, in our starting lineup but just about everybody's hitting over 300 ellie armistead at the end of the line of our shortstop who's a fantastic defensive shortstop she's hitting 291 so she's right there but everybody else is hitting like right at or well above 300 so we have a hell of a lineup and if we can get just enough pitching i think we got a shot i'm not gonna sit here and say that we're gonna do it but i think we certainly do have a shot and i'm very excited to see how that plays out i think the first game is thursday the second game is friday and if necessary it's on saturday so i'm gonna be watching it i encourage you guys to watch it even if you're not a big softball fan like i'm not i'm not a huge softball guy but hey as i always say if you put the g on your chest if you represent our university i'm all about you i got your back and i just want georgia to win i'm a georgia guy i want us to win in everything and i'll, I'll absolutely be watching so i hope you guys will too but uh, all right, guys, that does it for the questions that I've got today. But I do want to take a few minutes here at the end of the show to kind of recap what took place in Orlando slash Lake Nona at the NCAA tennis tournament this past weekend. Both the men's and the women's teams headed down to Lake Nona for the Elite Eight. They both qualified and, and gotten that far in the tournament. And it was awesome to see the ladies uh, pull out a win against Michigan on Wednesday night to earn a spot in the final four guys and that's that's an incredible accomplishment I mean, this was a really good tennis team this year guys I will say I do think they maxed out um I I they were there was a they had a shot to a national title things to kind of fall in their way they, we were good enough to absolutely have a puncher's chance to win the title but there were a couple of teams North Carolina NC State uh, in particular who they just they, they had some players at the top of their lineup that we just couldn't match. They just had the depth that we couldn't really match. And we have great depth, but they just they were on a different level. I mean, guys, North Carolina's number six singles player was ranked number 38 nationally. Their number six singles player ranked 38 nationally. What planet are we living on? Like, usually, like that's like reserved for like maybe your number two singles player. Number six player is 38th nationally. Like, that's that's crazy, man. That's insane. And unfortunately. Our ladies got matched up with North Carolina in the Final Four, and uh, yeah, we just it was it was always gonna be an uphill battle. We had a puncher's chance, we had a shot. Um, we played them a couple times early in the year. We beat, we lost five two, took a couple points off them in Chapel Hill. Gave them honestly one of their best matches they had all year. Um, but they were just they were, they proved to be too much, man. And we were like if we played them all out, I was you know I was zeroed in on Mekowski because as I've said many times, Mekowski is. Um, Man, she's like one of my favorite Georgia Bulldogs of all time. And I, I want to give her a quick shout out here. Quick shout out to Matt Kowalski. I know you guys probably don't know who she is outside of me mentioning her here on this podcast. But this is truly one of my favorite Georgia Bulldogs of all time. She represents everything that the G stands for. This this young lady is 
one of the biggest fighters I've ever seen in my life, a never-say-die attitude. Very rarely was Meg the most talented player, the more talented player when she was matched against whoever she was playing. But Meg won over 100 matches, guys. She won over 100 matches in her career. And again, the vast majority of those matches, she was not the most talented player. But you know what? You know what she was? She was the one who wanted it more. She was the bigger fighter. And she would never quit. I mean, she's going to keep a ton of balls in play. And she's going to run her freaking butt off all over that court and make her opponent earn it. And she has been one of the cornerstones of our program for five years now. And she's one of the best leaders that I've ever had the privilege to witness. I'm not inside the locker room, but just watching her. Like with tennis, like you're, it's more of an intimate environment. You can see these things. You see the players interact. And uh, like, there's just no one like Meg. I've never seen a player like that picking all of her teammates up. And she's the ultimate Georgia Bulldog, guys. And I can say uh, there's very few people that I can think of off the top of my head who I think have made a more positive impact on the University of Georgia during their time at Georgia than Meg Kowalski. I mean, she was on, she was on the athletic board on a bunch of different clubs, committees, all sorts of different things. She was just uh, a renaissance woman, truly a renaissance woman. And she's um, she's off to bigger and better things. I mean, like she's got a job at was it CAA, one of the big sports agency firms. She's gonna be working at their Atlanta office. She's a rock star. It honestly, would not shock me one day if Meg Kowalski came back and was our, our our athletic director one day down the road. It would not shock me at all. Um, she's just she's crazy, man. She's awesome. So I'm very much gonna miss her. So it was I knew it was probably gonna be her last match. So I went down there and was uh, just watching her closely and trying to cheer her on because I knew it wasn't gonna have another chance to do that. Um, and she she won the first set. Um, and she uh, was. She didn't get to finish her second set. She was up a break, then got down a break, um, but the match finished before she could finish her match. I think she probably would have ended up winning that match because that's just what Meg does. So maybe we could have gotten a point or two, but we weren't going to win that match as North Carolina was playing really well. Like We didn't win the doubles point. If you don't win the doubles point against Carolina, there's no way you're going to win four out of six singles matches against that singles lineup. Just not going to happen. So we just ran into a buzzsaw. That's that's the reality of the situation. But the great thing is, guys, we have a ton of players coming back. We're losing Meg. We're losing Liam Mons, our number one singles player. But Dasha Vimanova, who was a, a top five player but at the end of the year, number four nationally on two singles. She's back next year. Mel Riasco, who, by the way, in the singles tournament, just beat North Carolina's number one singles player, at least a girl who played number one singles for North Carolina um, in the NCAA tournament. She beat, and she was ranked number eight nationally. She beat her in the first round of the NCAA singles tournament today, the biggest win of her career. I mean, like when Mel is on, Mel is really good. She just sometimes can be inconsistent at times, but she really grew as the season went on, and she fights really hard, too. We have a bunch of we have a bunch of great ladies on the team. It's just a fun team to watch. So she'll be back. Gigi Grant on court six, and who I think is our best doubles player. She's just She's a doubles whiz out there. Insane hands. The way she sees the court. She's such an intelligent tennis player. So fun to watch. One of my favorites. She might take my place uh, as my next favorite after Meg. She's awesome. Um, And then Anastasia Lapata, freshman from Ukraine, was fighting like mad against a girl named Elizabeth Scotty, who was playing court four for North Carolina, but she was got hurt earlier in the year. She used to be her, their court two player. She's a senior, and, and Nastia is a freshman. And Scotty, uh, the North Carolina player on court four, she's a two times doubles national champion. She's freaking crazy awesome, very good. And Nastia lost that match, but she was fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting some more. She did not go down without a fight, man. That's what you want to see from a freshman in that spot. So the future is very, very bright for Georgia Tennis. Now with Drake Bernstein taking over as the head coach. He's been, I mean, I'm not going to seriously say Jeff Wallace hasn't been running the show. He's been doing, you know, his thing. But Drake has been taking on more and more responsibilities as the years have gone on, especially when it comes to recruiting. And all the, there's no, there's no accident we have, such a great team and all this talent because Drake's done a fantastic job of recruiting all these players. So there's a, a young lady named Alexandra Vechik who 
did not play for us this year for some NCAA clearinghouse stuff. I think she played in a pro tournament that NCAA didn't like. But if she comes back next year, which I'm hoping she will, she might end up playing court one for us next year. She, her UTR score, which is like this universal tennis rating for all these players out there, is higher than anyone on our team currently right now. Um, so there's a very good chance she plays court one. Whether it's her or Dasha, it's a great one-two punch at the top of your line. You've got Mel Riasco at, at, at court three. So the future is still very, very bright. We have a top three player in the country coming in from Oklahoma. I think her name is Gracie Epps. So a lot of great stuff to be excited about with Georgia women's tennis moving forward. Men's tennis, uh, man, heartbreaker. Uh, we fell to Ohio State in the Elite Eight, 4-3, man. We won the doubles point. Usually when you win the doubles point against elite teams like that, you got a really good shot. And I always felt all year we were... It was going to be really tough for a team. If we won the doubles points, it would be really tough for a team to take four out of six singles against us. And I felt that way. But Ohio State was able to do that. It came down to court five where uh, sophomore Miguel Perez-Pena was, um, he was up two breaks. And he also, he dropped the first set, was up two breaks in the second set. And guys, like I said earlier, it was scorching hot out there. And the heat got to him, man. He was throwing up out there. Heat exhaustion, 100%. And now you know you would think, well, like, wouldn't Georgia have the advantage over Ohio State? Like, wouldn't that happen to Ohio State's players too? The guy he happened to be playing, guys. Just, it's crazy, man. The dude he was playing, I know he plays for Ohio State, happened to be from the state of Florida. So he spent his entire life playing in Florida, playing tennis out there. Nothing really new to him. Um, Miguel, who's from Spain. Um, so he's played in, in heat before too, but guys. Like, it was a different level of hot down there on those courts. It was it was out of control. Like, I walk in the bathroom. Like, I was sitting under the shade on these little tents, and then walking out in the bathroom for like three minutes, walking on the stairs and back up. Like, I'm drenched in sweat. And I literally walk in the bathroom for three minutes. So imagine what it's like out there for those guys playing. And Miguel, like, I felt bad for him, man. He was throwing up out there. He was just hitting like lollipop shots, getting no pace on him. And Miguel's usually a guy that hits the ball with a lot of pace. And I, I could just see, I was like, he's done. He's done. Not because Miguel's not a good player. Like, he, he just physically could not do it, could not finish the match. And I got to give him props for even trying. Um, but he just got to him, man. It was really unfortunate. I think he had a shot to win him. Have two breaks in, in the second set. Miguel's been really good for us all year. And it would have been a really fun third set to watch, but um, it was not to be. But still, fantastic season for both the men and the women, guys. The future is still so bright for both these teams. I know the men are losing a bunch of super seniors, but we've got uh, Ethan Quinn, who's the number two player in the country. And he's only a freshman, guys. Only a freshman, and I'm hoping he doesn't go pro. Hopefully, he's back next year. But we've got a fan, like the number one recruiting class in the country coming in, headlined by a guy named Alex Michelson, who his UTR score rivals that of Ethan's. In fact, it's actually higher than Ethan's right now. Um, now he's playing some, some pro tournaments and doing some things. So it might be, just be a function of the competition he's playing. Ethan playing at the college level right now. Um, but regardless of how that plays out, I, mean, I still think Ethan would be number one, the court, the court one singles player. But that I, I think Michelson could very well sign into the number two slot there. And if he does, man, like, that's a crazy, crazy, scary one-two punch at the top of our lineup. And that's kind of been one of our issues before getting Ethan's. Like we've had some really good players who have good depth, especially in, the, like, in what we call the pit four, five, and six. But we haven't had those dominant players necessarily on one and two. Uh, that's changing. That's that's the thing of the past. Like that's that's not how it's going to be anymore. So I'm very excited about the future of the men's program, the women's program, and we're going to be national top contenders for the foreseeable future. We're in very good hands because that's that's what we are. That's, that's what Georgia tennis is. So I hate the way it ended. It was very disappointing. Um, but they both teams had you know fantastic seasons. Both champions. As the men's won the SEC regular season. Women won the SEC tournament. We had two championship teams this year, full of championship players. And it was a hell of a ride this season. I cannot wait to get back out there. I'm very excited about football season. Don't get me wrong. But I'm also excited to get back out there at the Damagill Tennis Complex next winter. So there you have it, guys. That's my report from Lake Nona. We still have a couple players alive in the singles tournament. Ethan Quinn won his first round match. It was 
crazy, got screwed in his draw. He's number two overall seed, somehow played the 17th ranked player in the country, which is insane. Like, it's just, it's nuts, man. Don't get me start college tennis. They just cannot get out of their own way. But Ethan won, ended up at TCU, who was a Final Four team, their number two singles player. Ethan won that match. It was a hard-fought match. He was able to win it. Phil Henning dropped his match, unfortunately. So he's out. But on the women's side, again, Mel Riasco won her first-round match against North Carolina's number one singles player. Dasha Vibanova won her first-round match. And Leah Ma, our court one singles player the past two years, won her first round match as well. And we've got Ethan and Trent Bride, who will be opening play, I think, tomorrow in the doubles tournament. So a lot of great stuff to watch on the tennis front. I'll keep you guys updated. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at Glory underscore UJ. We'll keep you updated with all of those happenings. But all right, guys, I'm out of here. I got to go get some food. It's dinner time. Your boy is hungry. So I will leave you now. Thank you guys for being here. You're awesome. I'm Tyler. And as always... Go dogs! <laughs>